This is From Our Neurons to Yours, a show from the Wu Tsai Neurosciences Institute at Stanford University. On this show, we bring you to the frontiers of neuroscience to meet the scientists building the tools that will let us communicate better with our brains. This week, we're talking about obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, and ketamine. OCD is something that we almost joke about. It's synonymous with being uptight and particular. But make no mistake, this is a serious condition, and it's something that it causes a great deal of anxiety and distress to patients who have it. There are a variety of treatments available for OCD, but they don't work for everyone. Recently, there's been a lot of excitement around a new treatment, ketamine. Ketamine is an anesthetic drug, and it's been in the news a lot. Ketamine has proved useful in a number of psychiatric disorders, not just OCD, but depression and post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. But it's complicated. Ketamine has serious side effects, and it is a scheduled drug. This week, we're going to be talking about OCD and ketamine with a leader in this field, Carolyn Rodriguez, who led the first clinical trial of ketamine for patients with OCD. I began our conversation by asking Dr. Rodriguez, what exactly is OCD? Thank you so much for the opportunity. So simply put, OCD is comprised of obsessions, which are intrusive thoughts, images, and urges that are experienced by the person as increase in anxiety. Then there's the aspect that is compulsions, which are repetitive behaviors or thoughts or ritualized patterns of thinking that serve to then decrease anxiety for that individual. In order to meet criteria for obsessive compulsive disorder, it not only has to have those elements and components, but also needs to get to the point where it's impairing and impacting the person's life, either their relationships, their social functioning, their ability to work, and cause a lot of distress. So they need to have those thoughts and behaviors for at least one hour a day for at least a year. It's so interesting because, as you say, there are a lot of misconceptions about this disorder. I think people use the term OCD very casually, but I'd be interested to learn more about the role of anxiety in this disorder. You said that the obsessions increase anxiety and the compulsions serve to reduce that anxiety. Could you talk a little bit more about that and maybe give us some examples? Absolutely. So there are different kinds of themes that people can have this template of obsessions and compulsions. For example, in terms of intrusive thoughts of contamination. So people thinking that things are contaminated or they may get contaminated or infected, then the compulsive behavior is ritualized behavior such as hand washing or cleaning. So that's one that's been highlighted in a lot of different kinds of movies. But one that has not been highlighted so much is intrusive thoughts of harm. To give you an example, somebody with OCD may be driving along the road and all of a sudden have an intrusive, unwanted thought that they've run somebody over. Which, if you can imagine, if you had that thought, it would be incredibly distressing and you spoke to the anxiety component of it. And then the accompanying behavior would be something like circling back to where they had that thought, stopping the car, looking in the bushes to see if anybody has been run over, going home, looking at the news, 
checking on the internet to see if there's been any accidents. So you can see quickly how that can sort of be very time consuming and really impact somebody's ability just to get to something simple from point A to point B. Another is intrusive thoughts of needing to have everything symmetric or exact. If it's not, then the behavior is to make everything organized. Mm. But some people have a thought that if they don't have these things organized, then a loved one will die. This is very classic OCD, but somebody may be misdiagnosed with something like psychosis. And then still yet another theme would be something like taboo thoughts. So these can be in nature of sexuality, religion. These are individuals that have intrusive thoughts of things that are contrary to their moral compass, to their beliefs. And that discrepancy is very anxiety producing. The accompanying behavior can be things like ritualistic prayers, repeating certain things, repeating numbers. So sometimes people don't think that that's OCD, but because they see the vision of somebody washing their hands repeatedly. And so having a thought and then doing like these ritualistic thoughts and countings and prayers, they don't connect it to OCD. So hopefully, just to illustrate the intrusive thoughts and the repetitive behaviors, but it can have all different kinds of flavors and patterns to it. Right. Looking at your research and some of the new treatments that you're involved in, it seems like our understanding of this disorder is is changing quite rapidly. Is that right? And how were people thinking about the disorder when you were trained in psychiatry? And, and how's that changing now? This really is a renaissance time for OCD. And there's been so much advances and discovery. And we're just at the tip of the iceberg in terms of translating that into knowledge. As I was being trained, one of the converging lines of evidence is that there is an OCD circuit that is hyperactive, including the orbitofrontal cortex, which is responsible for thoughts, and the striatum, which is responsible for behaviors, then the thalamus, and then the thalamus is a relay back to the orbitofrontal cortex. That hyperactivity has been shown in a lot of different neuroimaging studies, The thinking now is looking at brain regions that are even outside of that hyperactive circuit. As I was being trained, glutamate, the main excitatory neurochemical messenger in the brain, was one that was being tested and drugs that modulated that system seemed to relieve OCD symptoms. And so our lab is going beyond that in terms of being able to combine and pair drugs that act through that system. How do those drugs that change OCD symptoms then impact the neurobiology? Is it at the circuit level? Is it at the network synchrony or EEG level? Like, so how the neurons are are acting together or at a more fundamental or molecular level, changing levels of glutamate? So those are all questions on the horizon and exciting avenues to try and get us to understand more about the pathology of OCD. That's fascinating. Yeah, I'd love to dive into some more of those. And I think we will when we start talking about some of the treatments that your lab and others have been investigating, particularly interested to to talk about what we think that overactive cognitive emotional circuit is and how, how tweaking those things can lead to very specific improvements in this disorder. But first, I just wanted to quickly ask, out of curiosity, what drew you to this field? What, what made you interested in working with patients with OCD and working towards new treatments? For me, I think when I was in, in training and residency, it was just so heartbreaking to see like how long it took for people to get recognition and treatment. 
And just seeing the physical manifestations, people that had to wear gloves because their fingers were cracked and raw and bloody at times because of the hand washing and how it's very hidden. You know, people can be going about their lives and it feels to them that their mind is a prison, that they don't have control over their thoughts and feelings. At the same time, it was very appealing to me that individuals with obsessive compulsive disorder really have a lot of insight into that these thoughts are unwanted and you can actually have a conversation with them about their illness and they can be true partners in the, every sense of the term in terms of the clinical trials that I was interested in pursuing. We need that really strong partnership with somebody who's able to talk about their thoughts and feelings and how the interventions are working for their pathology. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's so important to have people expressing what they need, what real treatment looks like and what is working and what's not working. I thought it was very interesting that you mentioned that they're often very self-aware. It's not a delusion. It's not that they believe necessarily that these things are happening, but they can't get rid of the thought. Exactly. Well, I'd love to switch gears a little bit now and talk about your lab's pioneering use of ketamine as a potential treatment for OCD. Ketamine's been in the news a lot. People may have read about excitement about ketamine for a variety of mood and anxiety disorders, depression, bipolar, PTSD. But also, of course, there's, it's a drug with, with potential for abuse. There have been recent reports about Elon Musk's reported ketamine use and the potential implication of ketamine in, in Matthew Perry's death, I believe. And so, as with many drugs, there's always a risk of either overhyping or demonizing that conversation could go a million places. So I'd, I'd love to focus here on what ketamine is teaching us specifically about OCD. So my understanding is that ketamine has been used for a long time as an anesthetic, and it's a type of anesthetic called a dissociative, which means it creates a sense of separation between the mind and the body. Is that dissociative property, that separation, related to how it helps people with anxiety and mood disorders and potentially OCD, or is it something different? I think that is an area of active investigation. What we have come to know about ketamine and OCD, our initial studies really knocked my socks off when we gave the first low-dose IV infusion of ketamine to OCD to see if it could be helpful based on a couple different hypotheses. But when we saw somebody just have complete relief of their OCD symptoms, it was an incredible epiphany, both with the potential being mindful of the abuse and other risks, but to really have it be a probe to say like, okay, here is a brain, an individual, their brain currently is having these intrusive OCD thoughts. Then with ketamine, there's a moment of time where they don't have that. So now we can start to use this as a tool to really compare what are the differences with and without. So ketamine is not FDA approved for OCD currently. And I have real reservation in terms of individuals using it at home or in other ways. I think the FDA is increasing regulatory capacity. This is a drug that has, you highlighted out, it's called Special K. It has addictive potential and should be administered either within the context of research studies, which we're doing, or with a clinician because it can do things like change blood pressure, can change heart rate. People can't drive for 24 hours after getting a single dose of ketamine. This is a drug that is 
a scheduled drug and should be used with great respect. We also exclude individuals who have history of substance use or active substance use because of the abuse potential. That said, we are finding that a single dose of low-dose ketamine in about half of individuals that take it have dramatic, rapid decrease in OCD. And as the results of our latest R01 study, which is an NIH-funded study that took place over the course of five years, we found that on average, individuals that got ketamine versus midazolam, which is an active control that makes people feel woozy and hides the effects of ketamine, it isn't perfect, but but it is an active control. So that's to make it hard for people to know whether they're getting ketamine or not. Exactly. So after single infusion, on average, there's statistical significance in ketamine three weeks out, but not four weeks out. <laughs> so it's exciting wow. to see that. It's a replication of our previous findings. And now with that study, we have also done neuroimaging using magnetic resonance spectroscopy to get to your point earlier, within the anterior cingulate, this front part of the brain, we can measure changes in glutamate, glutamine, and GABA, which is an inhibitory molecule, to actually get at mechanism within the neural circuit, within the brain, at a very molecular level. We're looking at circuit function, so cognitive control, ability to stop and start thoughts hmm. with functional magnetic imaging, and also EEG, so we could have People, when they're getting ketamine, have a cap that records electrical activity in ensembles of neurons. We're at early days in analyzing this data. We've shown that we can replicate the rapid effects, but now what does that give us a handle in terms of the mechanism of action? Fascinating. And you know, what I was realizing as you were saying this, I think one thing that we may not have touched on earlier is that, am I right in, in thinking that the, the first line of treatment for people with OCD is... SSRI antidepressants and cognitive behavioral therapy to help people break that link between the obsessive thoughts and the compulsive behavior. Is that right? Absolutely. And then with the people who you're treating it with the ketamine therapy, those are the 20% of people for whom those frontline therapies are not effective. Yeah. So with OCD, and we think about first line treatments, there is a half glass full scenario that we have. First-line treatments, SSRIs, and cognitive behavioral therapy with exposure and response prevention. Both of these are first-line, and I like to say that not one-size-fits-all. Some people like to start with medication. Some people like to start with therapy. One of the advantages of the therapy is that it doesn't have the side effects of medication. Right. So oftentimes, that is the entry point for a lot of people. The good news is that half of people will be helped by one of these two first-line treatments. So about 8 out of 10 individuals will be helped with just the evidence base that we currently have. So my research really takes off for those individuals who aren't helped by those treatments. What else can we use? Also, FDA approved are things like transcranial magnetic stimulation, so non-invasive neuromodulation, and FDA has compassionate use approval for deep brain stimulation. That is a surgical intervention that stimulates directly these circuits. So there is right now a whole host of things that are available, but despite that, there are still people who aren't helped. And so these kind of exploratory novel treatments are needed for those individuals. And you're absolutely right. How can we use those to help 
potentially even augment cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. Cognitive behavioral therapy is having people in a hierarchy, exposing them to those things that are they're so afraid of in a systematic way and encouraging them to not do the compulsions. So anxiety naturally goes down on its own. So you need to actually train the brain to unlink those two things. Right. So you're absolutely right. Okay, yeah. So that's that's very helpful context to understand for many people that you can sort of train your brain out of some of these patterns of thought. Not everyone is able to do that. And in, even in these extreme cases, I think it's so remarkable that people who've been experiencing these intrusive thoughts for their whole lives, you get one dose of ketamine, it seems to take it away for weeks. I remember reading one person said it was like a vacation from OCD. But as you say, ketamine's not necessarily the best solution on its own. And it gives you this ability to say, okay, what has happened to the brain now? Why are they on a vacation from OCD? How has this circuit changed? Can you give us any insights into some of the hypotheses about what may be happening? We've talked about a brain circuit between sort of cognitive control and emotional centers of the brain that may be overactive. We've talked about discrepancies in the way the brain is processing glutamate, which is the main excitatory chemical neurotransmitter the brain uses. And there's also been research on using transcranial magnetic stimulation. I know you're working with Nolan Williams, who we've had on the show before, as well as deep brain stimulation to target particular brain circuits. So what is this all adding up to? What are, what are you thinking about about why ketamine works and what that tells us about the disorder. Yeah, absolutely. So you have summarized it very nicely, which are those are the different avenues that we are exploring. And I think not one size fits all. There are different subtypes of people. So not 100% of people are responsive to ketamine. So I sort of see it in two lines of investigation. For the patients who are coming into the clinic, how do we help those people now with treatments? And what can we learn about those individuals that aren't helped or as we're doing the research, trying to understand who is more likely to respond to which type of treatment? Mm. Those are two parallel avenues of investigation. Specifically for ketamine, the work that we've done so far points to kind of a, a fork in the road currently, which is, is it more glutamate dependent? Is that the active component? Could it also be the opioid mechanism? So when you get ketamine, you have this like kind of euphoric, elated feeling. And so Alan Schatzberg and I are funded by the NIH to do another R01 study, but this time using naltrexone as a pharmacological manipulation to block the mu opioid receptors when individuals are getting ketamine to see if the anti-obsessional effects are also blocked. And the reason why this is important is because should we as a field invest more in drugs that work through the glutamate pathway? So things like ketamine metabolite called RRHNK that has less addictive properties, that has less side effects. Like, is that the road to go for those individuals? Or is it more investing in opioid drugs that don't have addictive potential? Yeah. Oh, it's fascinating. Well, it's an exciting time that we have these leads and there's a lot of work to be done. I know you you did some work with Boris Heifetz here as well recently showing that the antidepressant effects may be related to the opioid side of things, but not ketamine's dissociative effects, the sort of mind-body separation. So maybe that also helps try to understand, is it the opioid sort of reward pathway? Is it the dissociative cognitive 
hallucinogenic effects, which of those is going to be more productive as an avenue to find more therapies. So yeah, thank you so much. And just to, and that work was in depression led by Nolan Williams, Boris Heifetz, and Alan Schatzberg. And yeah, exactly. So if those are the clues in depression, then what does it mean for OCD? So we're poised and excited to find out. And just to give a shout out also to Boris Heifetz, which we're partnering on a study to look at MDMA. He's done some really exciting work in animal models, looking at the mechanisms of the pro-social effects of MDMA. And we're partnering to do a study in obsessive compulsive disorder to see if we can use MDMA as a way to boost more the cognitive behavioral therapy for patients with OCD. Why? Because as you can imagine, it's really hard to do something that you're really fearful of and not everybody can do the therapy. And so could MDMA and its pro-social rewarding aspects boost the engagement with the therapist and takes an evidence-based treatment, but really boost the ability for people to actually do the therapy? Exactly. Well, thank you for correcting that. Yes, that, that study I was referencing was in depression, not in, uh, in OCD. We're definitely out of time here. This has been such a fascinating conversation and I think really speaks to how far we've come in psychiatry where for many years there was very little biological that we could do for people. But your work and the work of other neuroscientists at Stanford and around the world is taking us to a place where we're starting to understand mechanisms finally. So thank you for that. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for this wonderful platform. Again, there are people who are going to be listening to this that may be thinking like, do I have OCD and what can I do? And what I would say is you're not alone. You have so many resources. There's the nonprofit International OCD Foundation, iocdf.org, that has educational information, videos, things that you can look at to try and determine like, should I reach out for help? And if that's the case, if you're listening and that's the case for you or a loved one, please reach out. Also feel free to reach out to me. I really and passionate about getting people connected to care in their communities. That's great. And we'll have links for all those things in the show notes. All right. Well, Carolyn Rodriguez, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. Thanks again so much to our guest, Dr. Carolyn Rodriguez. You can read more about her work and the field in the show notes. This show is produced by Michael Osborne at 14th Street Studios with production assistance by Morgan Honecker. Our logo is by Amy Garza. I'm Nicholas Weiler at the Wu Tsai Neurosciences Institute at Stanford University. See you next time.